me your heart, show me your way, show me your glory. Man, I, I hope, that, uh, hope, that's, hope that's your heart today. And uh, so you guys who are Christians that are here, amen, um, don't miss the opportunity to, uh, to go before God right now and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Come in a special way. I, he already has. I'm just uh, thrilled that he gives us a promise that when we gather in his name, that uh, that he's here, he's here with us. So, let's pray as we uh, enter this next time, okay? God, show me your heart. Show me your way. Show me your glory. God, show us your heart. Show us your way. Show us your glory. And I, and I. I just know, Lord, I, I, there's times in which I could say those words too flippantly that I could just be an idiot and be a jerk and then just say, God, why don't you just show me your glory? And that's just not the way it works. Lord, uh, prophets, they, they say, when they came in contact with you, said, woe is me, I'm completely undone. They asked uh, that you would take a, a burning coal and touch it to their lips to purify them, God. And that's a strange metaphor for me, Lord, and maybe for us. The point of it being, God, that we're just so earthy, so focused on me, so focused on what's going on around me and my issues, my circumstances, God. And as a result, God, I will totally miss what you're up to in my life and around me, God, because I'm, I'm too focused on comfort or pleasure, Lord, not realizing that the greatest pleasure is found in you uh, as, as we dive deeper in you. God, we together, we gather here today in a faith saying, God, show up. Because we don't come in here actually holy. We're declared holy. We're being made holy. We've been set apart, but God, we're not perfect. So even in that, it's a faith coming together and just saying, God, I don't know how it, I don't know how it is that you could come and be pleased with us being broken people, but the, being though that you, Lord, look through Jesus to get to me and to get to us. We pray you do that today again. And you ex accept our praises, accept our worship, knowing that you do, and knowing that you come, and you'll not leave us the same, God. So bless this time as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. How you guys doing today? Doing all right? All right, summertime. Anybody been hot lately? How many of you guys can't wait for the, the weather to get cool? Okay. How many of you guys you like hot weather? Man, okay. All right. There's more hot weather people than I, than I thought. Um, good stuff. Well, it'll, it'll, cool weather will come soon enough. And in the, middle, in the midtime, uh, thank God for air conditioning, right? Um, who who, who uh, invented air conditioning? Anybody know? Just a little quiz? I don't know the answer, so I... <laughs> I can help you out there. Somebody will, will tweet it later on. Um, you guys, we're in the middle of 
of a, of a series we're actually finishing up today. It's called First Words, and we're in the book of Luke, and this is the last uh, of the, the four gospel writers. Um, and so we, we get to Luke. We'll talk a little bit more and kind of synthesize um, what we've learned before and, and talk about how it tells an incredible story as you look at the first words of each one of these. In, if you look at it in the order that we did, we started with Matthew. We talked about how he talked about Jesus as being a man in those first 15, 16 verses, the, the first little phrases that he gave. And we looked at John and talked about how John talked about Jesus being God. Um, and then we, we, last week we looked at Mark and we looked at the question, what does God require of us? So the first is Jesus is, God, Jesus is man, then Jesus is God, then it's what does Jesus require of us? And now we're going to look today and Luke is going to tell us how Jesus helps us to do what he requires of us. And this is amazing news because I'm telling you, Jesus requires you to be perfect. Jesus requires for, for you to be completely holy. Jesus requires for you to repent of your sins. The problem is, is that we can't do any of that in our broken nature until He helps us. And that's tremendous news for us because God's the one that shows up and helps us. Um, this was uh, written, by, written by Luke. And it's actually, it's just half of the story. All the other biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and John, were just from say basically his birth to his death and his resurrection. It was a biography about him. Luke's story is more inclusive because he not only tells about Jesus the Savior, but he also talks about the birth of the church. And so volume one is this biography. This next one is, uh, is his historical writing about the book, the, the, the birth of the church, and it's called the Acts of the Apostles. And it took me years before I realized that when just... You went to the book, the book of Acts, the book of Acts. And I was like, well, I like swinging an axe. You know, every kid likes chopping down a tree and, until you realize, no, it wasn't talking about that kind of an axe. It was talking about acts. And it was the acts of the apostles and how, how the church was actually formed. And it's important for us to take a look at, um, at the New Testament church in the first century and let it inform us on, on how, we should, how we should live. Um, it's also important that we don't, we don't try to force first century culture into 21st century culture because not everything transfers as apples and apples. Culturally, biblically, the things do and the commands do, but not everything that took place that may have been descriptive instead of prescriptive transfers over. And that's a talk for us to have another time. But um, this, was, uh, this was Luke. And Luke was a doctor. He was an actual physician and a comrade of, of Paul's. He was not an apostle. He did not walk with Jesus before he was crucified. This was a man that converted at some point during their may, maybe ministry days, may have been later days. We don't know for sure, but we know that he was close, a good friend of Paul's. And so like, like others, they depended upon the eyewitnesses, the apostles, for their eyewitness reports about what exactly took place. Um, some of you all may study language. If, um, if you look deeply within, within this and you compare the different writings and the writing styles, um, I mean, you got a lot of the, a lot of the, the apostles, I mean, even Paul, I mean, it, it's, 
their their writing um, wasn't um, it wasn't it wasn't high 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 in criticism um, as far as critical thinking. But Luke Luke was a historian, and uh, his writing style you, know, you could tell that he was he was one that had been had been educated uh, very well. Um, the other gospel writers were Jews, Matthew, Mark, and John. We don't know for sure that Luke was not a Jew, but most likely he was not. Um, Colossians 4, 10 through 11 mentions, Paul mentions three colleagues that were the only ones of the circumcision. And I'll, I'll just read it to you real qu- really quickly, just uh, give you a little background. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They've been a comfort to me. Of the circumcision, that was just an idiom that meant they um, they were a Jew. They were those that came from the people who were circumcised. But, and the reason why we we then conclude that that Luke was not a Jew, therefore is a Gentile, is verse 14. Because then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as well as, as Demas. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't say it right here about him being a colleague, but I'm going to hit a couple other verses that will explain this to you. So he mentions his colleague Luke, most likely a Gentile, uh, a doctor. He, was, he would have been trained by the Romans because they were under, under Roman captivity or, um, and control. So he might have even been a Roman. Uh, here's a couple other things said about him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.11, said, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So a little more is, is being told just in, in, in a bit, in, in a little bit of a conversation about who Luke was, that he was faithful. He was loyal, not just to Jesus, but to his community, to the community of believers that he was a part of, and to Paul himself. That when times got tough and every, everybody else scattered, Paul took the time to say, look, guys, I just want you all to know that, man, times have been tough, but Luke is with me. Luke has not abandoned me. And this is, this, this is huge in informing us about what it means to be a brotherhood, about what it means to be a church, about what it means to be a, a family of faith, is to say, you know what, man, when times get tough, I'm not going to leave you. And, I, and I'm telling you, it's not, it's not just about when the times come are tough circumstantially, you know, when things hit you, because that's when you do lean on the persons that are around you. But you know when it's the hardest? It's hardest when you butt heads with the person in community. It's hardest when that person sins against you and they're a jerk, they're an idiot. You know, um, I I call it getting past the honeymoon stage in relationships, Um, maybe within a small group. Uh, a journey group that you're a part of, or discipleship group that you're a part of. It could be just within this church, or if you're from, from somewhere uh, else outside of the city, another church maybe. You know, the, the, the people that you're, that you're in relationship with. Obviously, even within marriages, within family, your siblings that, are your, that you're with, it's, it, it tries you. It shows you who you really are and what your character really is when you butt heads with one another, when you disagree. When you just say, you know what, I'm supposed to love this person, but I don't have to like them. And uh, I know, you know you're going you're to feel that way about each other at times. Even within marriage, there's times in which, all right, I love them, but oh, I don't really want to be around them right now. 
those times come. You get past the honeymoon stage. I, I remember um, a year within, uh, with, uh, within a year of our, our marriage, so this was back in 1991 and 1992, and so we're 22 and 21 years old at this point of being a year married, and we, did, we played a newlywed game and, um, with, with some other couples, and we just, we just blew it away, you know? And, and a part of it was that they, they talked, that there was a question about your fights and your arguments and all that, and we're like, we're like, but we never argue. We never fight. And it was true. It was true. Because we're still, we're still in, in a honeymoon phase. And, uh, um, and we, we, we fight sometimes. We, we argue. Now, it's important to learn to fight fairly. It's important to know that you, you don't really, you're not really fighting against one another, but you're wrestling with one another. And wrestling in marriage is actually pretty fun. Um, but you, you, you must... You must say, all right, when those times come, God, help me to know that you've forgiven me so very freely. We just talked about it a while ago. Grace, you know, grace continues. It, it, grace comes and it abounds. It's grace upon grace that takes place. And so we take that same grace and we bend it out to one another. And, and we say, you know what, I, I don't agree with you, but I love you and I respect you and, and we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll, we'll work it out. And uh, so I, I just appreciate that about him and what that, how that informs us a little bit. He was faithful, he was loyal. Philemon, verse 24, um, Paul said, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And this just gives us a little insight that Luke was not just, wasn't just a friend, he was a colleague. He wasn't just someone who uh, showed up when, when Paul was around. This is a guy that he not only walked with Paul, but he did whatever it took to see the mission go forward. He was, he was all in. All in. Luke was a missionary, and he was a, he was a physician. He was a doctor. Um, he'd, been, he'd been trained. Um, Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible mentioned that Luke must have been an intelligent, influential man to be one of the few trained doctors by most likely the Romans at that time. And most of you that are sitting here, um, adults or if you're a student and you're preparing for your, for your career someday, is, is you don't get paid to be a Christian. You're not a professional Christian, all right? There's just a few people out there that their pastors or their ministers are on staff at a church and they get paid to do it. Now, rec- but but you're, help- you're recognizing that you're a minister too. We're all ministers. My job is actually just to equip you to be ministers. That's my job. If, if I'm just a guy who's just super talented, which I'm not, or just super compelling, which I'm not, or the, the most amazing communicator in the world, which I'm not, but I do it all, and you guys just kind of show up in an, in an audience, I failed. My job, Eric's job, Johnny's job, disciple makers within this church, our job is to help everyone know in the marketplace and in the schoolrooms to know that you're a minister right now. You're a missionary right now. Right now. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a missionary. Turn to the other person and say, you're a minister. It's true. And so it's important. I mean, this is a great example. A doctor, a physician who knew he was a minister. He knew he was a missionary. So let's take a look. Let's jump in. 
Luke uh, 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were the be- who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Big point, I think, in here. Do you want to be secure in the Christian faith? If you do, you need to be in the Bible, in the Word of God. If your goal is to be very insecure in your Christian faith and to be tossed around like the waves of the sea, here's your goal. Stay out of the Bible. Now, if you find that your lifestyle lines up with one of those goals, but it wasn't a goal, I just hope it's on the correct side. If, if, if you find it's like, well, that, my goal is not to be insecure, but that's, that's where I'm falling, at least in life, you know, don't, just let this be the last day. Just say, all right, God, I, I can't afford not to li- listen to you. The Bible, if, if you, uh, the, the, the Latin term that I like is vox Dei, the voice of God. Look at the Bible not just as a library, not just as a historical document. Look at it as the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ as he tells the story of creation. As he tells the story of the world all the way from pre-creation to creation to the fall, all the way to redemption which took place at the cross and what's coming someday which will be completion when everything is completed, when everything is put back together. That's the reason why Luke did this. He put it together so that you would be secure in your faith. You would have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now listen, today, going through Luke 1, is not, we're not getting into everything. We're going to focus mainly on the last couple of verses. There's a tr- there's tremendous message within this section and, 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 and some verses that follow that we're just not going to get into uh, at this point. But one thing for you, to, for you to note in here is all the other biographers of Jesus took their time primarily to talk about Jesus in their first few words. Luke talks about John the baptizer. That's pretty amazing. And you may, may ask, well, man, wow. John the baptizer must have been an amazing guy for that to be the first words to come out of Luke's mouth. Well, you're right. Jesus actually declared him to be the greatest among his generation, the greatest of all. In all his generation. So Jesus himself gave severe kudos 
major props uh, to John the baptizer. But that's not really the point, because we're going to get to it in just a little while about what Jesus' point was, even in the life of John the baptizer, and even while he was in his womb, what took place. Um, now, by the way, the name John itself, how many Johns do we have in here? You probably already know this. Your name means God is gracious. When you say your name, do you realize you're preaching the gospel? That's awesome. Everybody, everybody say, John. God is gracious. That's what, that's what we're saying when we do that. Next time you meet, next time you meet, uh, meet somebody uh, or see a friend named John, ask him, say, do you, know, do you know what your name is? And if they're a Christian, encourage them. Say, man, wow, your, your name proclaims the gospel. And if they're not a Christian, use that as an opportunity. Just build a bridge and just say, man, your name actually means that God is gracious. That, what, what does that mean to you? And uh, see where the conversation goes. See if, see if a spiritual conversation will turn into a gospel conversation. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He'll be great before the Lord, verse, verse 15 says. Again, Jesus proclaimed he was the greatest man of his generation. Luke 7, 28 is where this is proclaimed. Um, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, I, I think it's smart to, to respect John the baptizer. Uh, God, uh, God blessed him. Um, he put a lot within him, but he also he, he did o- obey. Now, um, we, get into, we get into what's called the Nazarite vow. It says he will not drink wine or strong drink. Okay? This is in reference to the Nazarite vow, which Numbers chapter 6 talks about. And um, Numbers 6, verses 2 through 8, this is what it says. i give you some context. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord... He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother. For, for brother or sister, if they die, shall, make he, shall, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So that gives you more of the context of what the Nazarite vow was. And this was something that came from a calling from God, either upon parents or upon that person, and a desire in a person's heart that they would live a life that there was a, there was a symbolism to who they were, to their lifestyle, which actually proclaimed something about God. It was, it was, um, it was a, a huge a huge commitment that a person made 
because they had to be careful everywhere, everywhere they went and what they did. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into all, the, all of the, uh, uh, the details in it, but, but even with the thing of, of uh, the vine, fruit of the vine, wine, grapes, raisins, uh, even as we know it, um, it was, that in and of itself was something that proclaimed that God even was separate from His creation, even separate from the chosen people, which was Israel. He's separate from them. He was holy. He was set apart from them. He's very, 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 very different, even from those that He chose to bless. And so even in that, they, they proclaimed that. Now, there's been some who have tried to use this to prove why you should not drink wine or other alcoholic beverages. And just to make very plain and clear, first of all, if you're below 21, you know, it's against the law. So don't don't drink beverage alcohol. Um, many of you uh, who are over 21, uh, you have no desire to drink beverage alcohol. I say more power to you. There's no need for you to drink beverage alcohol if you don't have a desire for it and don't, don't want it at all. Um, alcohol is, in and of itself, is amoral. It's a, non, it's a non-issue within itself. Um, however, uh, it's... it's for those who would try to use this as a part to say, well, now, see, people should be like John the Baptist. Uh, people should, should not drink alcohol. Well, these same people, you would need to abstain from raisins and grapes. And, and you, you actually have to stay away from any dead bodies if you make that vow to including, if you saw in there, you couldn't even come to your own parents' or family's funeral um, because, because of what the Nazarite vow uh, is. Um, the ones, see, the ones who took the Nazarite vow, they didn't do it because they were a better person. They did it to proclaim that God is a great God and that He's so very, very different. Um, the Nazarite vow was the exception, not the rule. There was only a few people uh, who, would, who would take the Nazarite vow. John the baptizer lived under the Nazarite vow. Jesus did not. Um, uh, Luke chapter 7. I'll turn to it real quickly. Luke 7, verses 33 through 35. Jesus said this. He said, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Um, so again, the exception, and Jesus, Jesus didn't take the vow um, within his life. Um, now, right before his death, uh, when he instituted the Passover and communion, uh, the Eucharist, um, in it, he, he took it and asked them to drink and told them it was his, his blood and told him the bread. He broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. My blood which is shed for you. Consume it. Take it is, is what he said. And do this in remembrance of me. And then he ended up saying, I will not drink of this until we're in the kingdom together. Until the wedding feast by which the bride is completely collected and, and we celebrate together and I am going to give the first toast is what Jesus said. When the time comes, I'll raise the glass. And I'll say, everybody drink to my Father, everybody drink to the Spirit, and everybody drink to me. 
There's nothing selfish at all. Jesus saying, worship me. And so we'll all raise our glasses and all being a part of some massive cosmic bride. And we'll all say, all hail to the groom, our Savior, our Redeemer, our brother, our God. Cheers. Cheers. So it says, uh, wisdom is... Wisdom is proven by our actions. There in verse 35 of Luke 7, Jesus proved how to live wisely. He did not abuse freedom. And, and, and I, I don't want to take too much time on the whole alcohol thing, but it's, it's relevant within this. And I, I just, I, I, want, I want you to know that if, if you're an adult and, and you feel, feel free to, to drink alcohol, you're free to drink alcohol. But you need to do it in moderation. You need to do, as 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, you need to do all things to the glory of God. So if you're going to take of that, do it in a way that glorifies God. Don't abuse it. Don't sin. Don't drink and drive. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's just vital in these days that you're, you're very careful, very careful uh, with it. But if you are one, if you're one that you choose to drink, you need to make sure that you drink it because you're free to drink, not because you have to prove a point. I've seen a lot of my brothers and sisters, you know, in the faith that, that maybe they grew up in a household or maybe in a church where they couldn't drink alcohol, and when the time came, man, they're just, they, they go nuts, and they abuse it. Or maybe they don't go out and get drunk, which is a sin, by the way. Don't get drunk. But maybe it's that whenever they're at a place that serves alcohol, that they have to have a beer, they have to have a wine, they have to have a cocktail, they have to have whatever, because they got to prove to others, they got to prove to themselves that I'm a Christian and I'm free, and so I have to drink. They, they, wouldn't, they don't recognize it, you may not recognize it, but that is not freedom. That in and of itself is slavery. That in and of itself is works. You're trying to prove something, you're trying to gain some kind of acceptance of yourself or of others maybe even of God himself, you don't need to add anything to the cross. God has already said, I'm completely pleased with you. Don't try to add, add to it. But on the other side, some may say, I'm not going to drink just to show that I'm good. And you can not drink, but if you think you're not drinking is what is proving that you're good, that's self-righteousness. And just like the person who abuses the freedom feels they have to do it, needs, you need to repent of your sin and of trying to abuse your freedom. You also, if you're being self-righteous, you need to repent too, just like Jesus called for the Pharisees. It says uh, in here um, something bizarre. It's one of the strangest statements in the entire Bible. It says that he was filled with the Spirit from the womb. John the baptizer was. Now we're going to come back to that here in just a few minutes. Um, in this, uh, it, we're, we're told that John the baptizer, uh, he was great before the Lord. There's many things he was going to do for the Lord and for the kingdom of God. He was a leader. And some of you, you, you want to be a leader. You want people to follow you. And step one of being a leader is being obedient. Many of you, you're not, you're not going to lead. There's not others that others are not going to follow you, but others can be inspired by your obedience. 
And so, but if you, if you desire to be a leader, you need to start by leading yourself. That's where you start. So be obedient. Obedient people listen to God, and then they do whatever God says, and they go wherever God says, whenever He says to do it. That is the call of every disciple, uh, is to be obedient before the Lord. Now, leaders take a couple of steps past that. Not only does a leader do whatever God says, go wherever He says, whenever He says it, but they're not afraid of people following them. Just hold on. Before we get to the next point of inviting people to follow them, they're not afraid of people following them. And that takes... That takes actually, in some ways, it takes kicking pride away from some who like, man, I want everybody to follow me. Everybody should follow me. I, I, I got it right. Everybody needs to come follow me. But then others, probably some of you in here, you're one that just says, man, I don't want anybody to follow me. God, I, I don't, I don't want to be a leader. I know me. I look in the mirror. Nobody should follow me. And God's saying, no, no, no. I, I can do what I want to do in you. And so... I'm going to have people follow you. And so it's a step of faith for you actually to say, God, I'm not afraid of people following me. And to say, all right, Lord, however that's supposed to look in my life, however you need to transform me to where I reject, uh, reject pride, but also reject false humility, God, make me who I'm supposed to be so I'll be obedient, and whoever wants to follow me as I go, I'll invite them. And so that's what a leader does. A leader listens to God. They do whatever God says, go wherever He says, whenever He says it. They're not afraid of people following them, and they invite people. They say, follow me. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Turn many hearts to the Lord. God made a change in John's human condition that enabled him as an imperfect man to achieve the destiny that God had for him. God has a destiny for you, each and every one of you. Look, look at me. God has a destiny for you. He has things that he has desired and wants to take place in your life. And the great thing is, is that it's not on you to, to move the stone at the very beginning, to, to st- come out of the starting blocks, because you can't, you can't be the origin person God's the origin person. We'll come back to that in, in just a, a minute. Verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, pe- to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now guys, especially those who are leaders, especially those of you, you men, you women, you students, that you're like, I've embraced being a disciple maker. I'm not, I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect but I know God wants to use me in life. Listen carefully to what this says and how this speaks to you. First of all, it says, he, turned, he'll turn, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Now that means he, the hearts are being turned from somewhere else. Man, that sounds like today. Among dads and fathers. That, man, they're just focused. and Some of them are just, I mean, they're wicked and evil. I mean, just, I mean doing horrible things and and spending, spending their family's money on illegal activities and horrible things that's going on. But for many, they're guys that, I mean, they're pursuing what they think will be best for their family, but yet they got, they got their alignment out of order. Jesus is not first. 
And their family is not second. I'm telling you, every one of you men that are in here, God desires for you, if you are married, and most of y'all who God will take you forward to be married, you will be a pastor of your family. As the head of your household, God desires for you to lead. And you're not going to lead great. You're not going to lead perfectly. But God wants you to lead, nevertheless. God wants to press you forward. And He wants to turn your heart from all these other things that some of them are important, but they're not in the right priority. So may your heart be turned, first of all, to Jesus. And may your heart next be turned to your family, to your, to your wife, to your kids as relevant. And if those aren't relevant, that your heart be turned to your church, the, the community that God has called you to, to live life out. To, and then, then the neighbors and the colleagues and the fellow students that God has placed around you, that you focus. Um, I, I think it's, it's more than just the fathers, though. That are, their hearts are supposed to be turned to the children. It, it's, it's all of us. All of us need to have, a, have, an, have one eye on the generation before us and one eye on the generation behind us. We need to love and respect those that are our, fa- our, our fathers and our grandfathers that are around us. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful God's bringing more and more diversity in this, in this church that we're not just a bunch of youngins, you know. Uh, we need more fathers and grandfathers, you know, in, within who we are that we can look to. We can, we can watch and say, I'll follow you as you follow Christ. But it doesn't stop there. That we all have our heart, hearts and eyes on the generation beneath us. Those that are younger, the, 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 the children and the students. And we're all, we all conceive and we all think, how can I be reaching up and, and say, man, lead me, and how can I reach down and add value? Love the kids. Um, there's a, a quote a long time ago, it, it takes a village to raise a child. You know, you know, you, I'm not talking about necessarily the context that that statement was made in, but it's true. It takes a church, it takes a, a larger family to make a strong family. And so I invite you, sojourners, don't just look at yourself and your family or just your peers and the station of life that you're in. Look at those that are in stages ahead of you and and get around them and say, you know what, teach me, show me. I I just want to lay my cards out because you've gone where I haven't gone and and I want to follow you. I want to go there too. Will you invest in me? But but then we all need trickle-down discipleship. We all need to be looking at those that, they're, therefore, they're looking at us. And, I, and I'd say in particular, our, our kids, students. I mean, our high school, middle school, um, elementary, um, preschool kids. And, 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 and we've got a wonderful opportunity as we transition to, uh, to uh, the bank. Uh, starting next week, we had a great opportunity for every one of us. And I, I just invite you, and I, this is no, it's no guilt trips. You, don't have, you can put your bags down. We're not going on that trip. Um, but, but I think we need to all think through and process. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you may, be, you, you may be a high school student. It's like, you know what? Maybe you can, maybe you can be a part of, of, a, of a class uh, that, that's discipling um, elementary kids. And, and you don't have to be the head, but, man, you get to learn. You, you can be used. All of us. You know, maybe, 
some of you single guys, the day's coming when, when God brings a, a spouse your way and, and uh, someday and, and God gives you children, you're going to need to know how to rock a baby and change a diaper. Guess what? We've got some practice for you. said, uh, turn the disobedient to the wise. Um, there was discipleship going on. There was compelling leadership that was going on in John the Baptist's life. And, and uh, you know, I, I think part of this, you know, of, when you see a, a movement, you see a, a people that, that those who are disobedient start turning their hearts to the wise. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing when you start seeing people and their lives being changed. And, and um, just kind of, again, with the thing of, of, of those, with, when they turn their hearts somewhere else, usually this has to do with, with um, somebody that you're, you're looking at someone to follow. You're looking at somebody that way. And, and um, the people that you need to follow, you need to follow some men and women that are Bible-rooted. You need to follow people that have a passion for Jesus Christ. You need to look and ask yourself, do, do they have the fruit that I desire in my life? You know, do they, you know, how do they handle their finances? What kind of, what kind of uh, respect or credibility do they have um, among people that aren't even believers? Um, what kind of a husband are they? What kind of a a wife are they? What kind of dad are they? What kind of mom are they? Look at, look at their kids. And please, I mean, as you look at a leader and you look at their kids, don't try to find perfection there. But, but do you see, just generally speaking, do you see respect? Do you see, do you see health? Um, because you need to follow people that lead the ones closest to them well. Does that make sense? If not, don't follow them have a hard work ethic. It says all of this to make a people ready. To make a people ready to, to follow God. To follow Jesus Christ. And, and you know what? There's men and women in here that you are leaders. and God uses you to, to make ready a people. To equip saints for the work of, of ministry. So, John the baptizer, he, he had a specific destiny. He had, a, he had that a Nazarite vow upon him which I don't, and, and you probably don't either. But you don't have to have the same destiny as he did. But God does have a destiny. He wants specific things to happen in your life. Now, now again, let me, let me quickly, as, we're, as we start to, to come to the end of this, I want to just synthesize where we've gone with this, these first words again. We looked at Matthew, who said Jesus was a man. We looked at John, who said Jesus was and is God. We looked at Mark, who said Jesus requires that you repent and believe. But I think one of the most important parts in this is that Luke reveals to us that Jesus changes hearts so they can believe. Jesus does a work in us so that we can worship Him, so we can. You see, there's two there's two births that take place in a Christian's life. A physical and then a spiritual. John 3 I talked about this when, uh, when Jesus was speak, speaking to Nicodemus. And uh, 
Nicodemus said, uh, said to him, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one has, can do these signs unless God is with them. And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in a mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he says, to enter heaven, to have a relationship with me, with, with God the Father, is you've got to be born twice. He said before, you've got to repent and you've got to believe. And here he's saying there's no way any of that is going to happen unless you're born a second time. Now John the baptizer, you guys, is a flip of this. He's the only one that we know that was born spiritually before he was born physically. And you say, why did God do that? You know what my answer is? I don't know. I have no foggy idea. No idea why God did it. But here's my thought. I think that what God did it in there is to reveal to you all those that are spiritually born after they're physically born, it's done by God, just like this one here who was born spiritually before he was born physically was done by God. Jesus explained it. He said it's God himself who must do the birthing. God himself must change a heart for a person to walk as a changed person. Now guys, listen. This is unbelievable news. Because if God does it, if He starts it, God finishes it. If God has a destiny for you and for me, and, he's, and He says, look, I have all these things for you to do, all these things that, have to, that need to be accomplished, but yet then He says, now go ahead and t take your best shot. We're toast. But if God says, I have things that I want to do in you that you cannot even imagine. And guess what? I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. You Christians who are in here, this is an opportunity to worship God because God changed your heart. You wouldn't have done it on your own, but God did. He loves you that much. He changed your heart. He's drawn you near to Him, and the greatest response in the world is just to say, God, thank you so much. Now I'm empowered by you, and I can press forward in my destiny. And I would just say this. If any of you are my friends, that you've never come to a place that you fully surrender to Jesus Christ, I just I invite you, because the Holy Spirit is doing something in you, even right now. He's wooing you. He's calling you to himself. And I just say, repent and believe, and the Lord is going to help you with that process.